Hello, I'm Harry. Hello, I'm Rory. And shall we games on film? very nice rory thank you very much for that i thought you might have said welcome to war games on film but um i I know but i kind of i feel that you managed to convey the sort of the robot speak of whopper the evil not evil i guess the ai in question in the film war games is what we're covering today on games of film the podcast celebrates video game movies that was a long sentence (laughs) i think i think computers are better i think computer i would start getting the little red lines under my text as i start to continue the sentence without even pausing for breath (laughs) i'm sure someone out there is already queuing up the first completely ai generated podcast to replace all human podcasters I'm sure they exist already. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> when people do those things where it's like, I fed, I forced an AI bot to read 50 scripts for friends, and this is what it came up with, and it's all like, Monica says, shut up, Chandler, you doofus, audience laughs or whatever. Is like, is that something that happens? Like, uh, the results go viral but i always get the impression that they just typed it themselves and wrote it as if a robot wrote it rather than forced an ai bot is there a website you can go where you can just force an ai bot to read lots of scripts i mean i just think this is the world we live in this is a modern world where we're not sure if somebody's very skillfully writing uh, a script like it's a robot writ it again there's my grammar again like a robot writ it <laughs> i mean you just don't know do you and i think in a, in a in a real way, this film we're talking about today, I think, ins- I think, maybe inspired a generation, because I think the the kid the kids who are doing this sort of thing today, I, they they feel like the Matrix is the old movie that that taught their parents about hacking and stuff, and then maybe before that it was the nineties films Hackers, which told their parents about hacking and stuff like that. But I think. This was one of the first films which popularized hacking and sort of accessing a computer across the country or across the world. Yeah, for sure. This was like the first mainstream, I guess, presentation of that and certainly popularized it in people's minds and, you know, gave people some sort of pop culture reference to that sort of hacking activity, which, you know, seemingly in this time was... I mean, apart from the threat of imminent nuclear war, kind of a benign version of hacking, just like, oh, just like type in this thing and hack into this and just do it for lols and a bit of a laugh and just see what's, you know, in other people's computer systems, rather than all those terrifying images you see when you look up hacker and stock photos and they're all wearing (laughs) shades and they're all wearing sort of dark... Uh, jackets in w- un- poorly lit bedrooms. 
I mean, I think one strength of this film and spoilers for War Games, I suppose, is that uh, Matthew Broderick, his character David, he's presented as just an, a regular guy. And there is a scene when he meets some proper, you know, Big Bang Theory to the nth degree nerd characters. Um, but for the most part, he's treated like a, a normal everyday kid who it's just so funny how they take hackers in those aforementioned movies hackers and the matrix and they they do dress him in levers and try and make him hyper cool they're sort of skating through a secret underground digital world but i have to i have to say um tron came before this and there's a tron arcade cabinet in this film isn't there which i think was a nicer wink to the uh, the previous film but I know Jeff Bridges goes into Encom in Tron to hack, but he, he, does, he nobody hacks from the other side of the country or anything, do they? No, I don't think so. And I, you have I, to be on site, Mission yeah. Impossible style. <laughs> and I think, yeah, this is like, I guess, early depictions of dialing in into other computer systems using landline telephones rather than, you know wi-fi broadband i know there's still something really cool about that i wrote down it seems so future mystic which was a typo i was meant to write futuristic <laughs> but i like future mystic it's very future mystic <laughs> yeah but it's also it does it does fall into that category where like there's micro hmm. no i was going to say it falls into that category where microchips are everywhere and computers do anything but i still don't think it, it doesn't go to like superman three levels mm. I was thinking, did Superman 3 come out in, in 1983? It was around feel, that time. I feel there's... See, I was born in 83, and I think so many 1983 films feel very 1983. They've sort of they've sort of got, like, I don't know, the, the aftertaste of the late 70s, <laughs> but they're not quite into the 80s cool, the 80s aesthetic. I just noticed how, like, all the telephones in this film are, like, like analog they ring with bells and there's a lot of phone ringing in this film yeah it's definitely uh, more beige than neon so beige <laughs> <laughs> but i think that sort of um i think that also lends itself some sort of authenticity it's somewhere in between that sort of as you say that 70s grit and that sort of 80s optimism in in mm. some respects um and playfulness and I think you just have to look at the kind of the sets and even the main kind of war control room. It's not hyper stylized like, say, Doctor Strangelove. Um, and if it was done nowadays, it would all be holograms and it would be stuff which wouldn't be practical in the slightest. And That's everything... like a real bugbear of mine. Uh, yeah. Like, you see it in like even completely modern films mm. and like. I don't know. I just, I just remember seeing things like Jurassic World as holograms, and you're like, wow. If if they actually decided to build the whole interest industry around moving holograms rather than dinosaurs, everything would probably be fine. <laughs> um, I can confirm that Superman three did come out in 1983. Okay, <laughs> so I will be mentioning that again. And of course, as you said, Doctor Strangelove, I think got heavy, heavy vibes um from superman 3 and dr strange love those two masterpieces <laughs> combine the both and you get war games um or Do dr superman <laughs> uh or how Do i dr love man or how i learned to stop wearing and love kryptonite 
Yeah. And I don't think we'll ever cover Superman 3, but there is a video game sequence in there, isn't there, where yep. Superman is flying around and, and that's like the only video game bit. Um, I also, speaking of 1983, recently watched Never Say Never Again, which has a an arcade slash um, video game section. And as I'm speaking, I'm thinking, wow, if, if, if we don't do Superman 3, we don't have to do Never Say Never Again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, watch this space. But talking about the control room uh, and just how that sort of that feels, and I think it carries its way through the film, is that there is that sort of authenticity to it. Like, it looks very... I think it's it's like a visually interesting set because you have the big screens and you have the graphics which show where all the nuclear strikes, etc. are coming from. But all the machinery and maybe apart from the Whopper itself, which is just like a big load of, I think the general uh, calls it dismissively a silicon diode. Um, oh my God, that general. But General, general Peter Griffin, because he <laughs> looks just like him. It was incredible. Um, but uh, I think the sort of look is it gets that sort of like drab reality of what a military base probably looks like. It's not very flashy. It's it's kind of like a glorified, boring office uh, for most yeah, of the parts. So and all the machinery is all very clunky, chunky computers. So I think that's what really, um, I think that's sort of a benefit to 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 the film in making it feel more real uh, than some of the, you know, I think as the eighties progressed loopier uh, (laughs) kind of concepts. I mean, the the director himself, John Badham is an interesting director. Um, His big breakthrough was Saturday night fever, which, you know, mega hit. Um, Didn't know that. But you know, that film has some sort of grit to it. um, And he, I think subsequent uh, before this film released Blue Thunder, which I think is Roy Scheider in a AI powered helicopter or something. Um, uh, and then Short Circuit uh, was another of his films. Um, oh, wow. So you can see the kind of progression. Obviously, that's more of a sort of family film orientated thing, but it's sort of military hardware and stuff, but with a goofy robot sidekick, which this film, you know, could in other hands equally have had. <laughs> You can imagine Johnny Five running around chasing after Matthew Broderick and being like, you know, <laughs> armed with a nuclear weapon. Whopper, which stands for War Operation Plan Response, um, does have a face. So it does have like yeah. a subtle electronic LED face. So that's that's the one concession I think they do to like the science fiction element. Um, but you're all right. I mean, so our younger listeners probably didn't grow up when they decided the predominant colour of technology was beige. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes you open up a garage and you find these old computers inside and they've gone full, they're like rotten teeth in there. <laughs> yeah, it definitely looks like they're on 50 cigarettes a day. Kind of, uh, <laughs> it looks, I mean, my even my Dreamcast right now looks like it's got a very bad smoking habit. <laughs> like how many how many cigarettes does Whoppers smoke a day? I can cut down. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, again, sometimes I just stand slack-jawed at, at the progress of technology. I mean, I'm speaking to you on a Chromebook, and it's got a touch screen, and you can bend the monitor backwards, and it, it's really light, but, you know, 
this goes back to the old Simpsons joke where um, is it Do- Dr. Frink? Is his name Frink? Yeah. Uh, he's like, in the future, computers are going to be the size of a room. <laughs> and that's, that's progress. <laughs> David Lightman was a master at computer games. A fast thinker. Oh, David! Maybe you could tell us who first suggested the idea of reproduction without sex. Your wife? Get out, my And a promising student at an old game. Hi. With an electronic twist. Are those your grades? Yeah. I don't think that I deserved it, F. Do you? You can go to jail for that. Only if you're over 18. This computer company is coming out with these amazing new games in a couple of months. And I want to play those games. Wow. What? We got something. He found the right code word to play the game. We're in. But it was the wrong computer. Shall we play a game? I can't ask you that. How about global thermonuclear war? Fine. All right. <laughs> Trajectory headings for multiple impact re-entry vehicles. What's that mean? I don't know, but it's great. All stations, this is Crystal Palace. I wonder if I should use my subs. 22 Typhoon-class submarines departing Petropavlov. What in the hell's happening here? Oh, my God. Shall we play? I have seven. Correction, eight. That's eight Redbirds. Get on the sack. Tell them to flush the bombers. Russians are still denying everything, sir. Who are you working with? Nobody. I do not believe you. Over day, we have Soviet missile warning. Based on your arrest, pending indictment for espionage. Espionage. Confidence is high. I repeat, confidence is high. Cobra Dane, is this an exercise? Negative, this is not an exercise. Made the president on the horn. It's still playing the game. It's gonna start a war. Close up the mouth. Is this a game or is it real? War games. Playing soon at a theater near you. Shall we play? I have the back of the box from an old Warner home video VHS cassette. I think it's an American one. Um, Are there any sort of incongruous no, Zs or Ss in there? No, no, it's a UK one because Ooh. they've got UK publications in the quotes. So the back of the box reads, he had the ultimate survival of the whole world at his fingertips. War Games is one of the most audacious, gripping, and totally enjoyable thrillers of recent years, which, said the Daily Telegraph, is a film which anyone can enjoy if he likes good stories well told. I like the phrase totally enjoyable as well. Like in every sense, it's enjoyable. You're writhing in your cinema seat, so you're like getting like caressed on your feet. And that's what my ideal cinema is be like. Anyway, moving on. But I like how the Daily Telegraph, the way it describes a film which anyone can enjoy if he likes good stories well told. It's like, if you're a man about town heading to the motion pictures of an evening, you might partake of board games, which one will enjoy if he likes good stories well told. Well, what if I like bad stories well told or good stories told badly? Well, watch Superman 3. <laughs> Touché, good sir. Matthew Broderick is excellent as a teenage computer wizard who accidentally connects his home computer to the top secret 
Whopper, the mega computer that controls the entire United States defense system, and innocently challenges it to a game of warfare. But he has started a countdown that could trigger off World War III unless he can stop it in time. Ali Sheedy scores as Broderick's high-spirited girlfriend, and there is strong support from John Wood as the Whopper's designer and Dabney Coleman playing a Defense Department advisor. These aren't quotes. This is just the, the bots sort of saying, oh, she does a great performance. Did she? Did you say that she scores? As... She scores as Broderick's high-spirited girlfriend. That's a weird word to use. Something tells me it was used because it's video gamey. I'll give it a pass. Yeah, let's let's assume that's that's the implication. The exciting and often very funny script is directed with maximum breath-holding suspense by John Badham, aided by stunning special effects. The Sunday Times called the film a remarkably effective thriller, a consummately effective piece of cinema. For Oracle, it was a thriller that really thrills and New Musical Express said that it should have audiences laughing and palpitating at the same time. <laughs> that sounds like you're dying. It's like <laughs> it's your heart attacking. That's your last thought. It's like, I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah, like a uh, dying of laughing gas. I mean, it does sort of sidestep like every... this film is about like the world ending and everyone's like laughing. <laughs> I don't know. I love old, uh, you know, I love old media. <laughs> Here we are, podcasting about newspaper clippings off a VHS cassette. What could be better? I should also mention that um, Matthew Broderick and Dabney Coleman would reunite in Inspector Gadget. Crikey, really? In which in Dabney Coleman, who plays McKittrick in this, plays Chief Quimby. To oh. Matthew Broderick's Go Go Gadget performance. I um yeah I I kind of watched a clip of that the other day when he gets into his jive talking car, and it just felt like oh loads of films back then like had sort of talking cars. <laughs> I don't know. It just didn't. See, it actually just seemed like a hot skip and a jump away from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which also had like a taxi cab, which was a wise guy, and it just thought like, well, that's a that's just a thing Disney liked back then, I suppose. Although I guess well, uh, I'm getting sidetracked by talking cars already. Well, <laughs> you'll be pleased to know that only the voice of the talking car in Inspector Gadget reprised their role in Inspector Gadget Two. Well, that's the guy that has like harry from third rock from the sun in it doesn't it yeah french stewart i kind of want to see that i wonder which Why? i like more. because i'm a masochist <laughs> i must see every inspector gadget live action movie <laughs> well it'll only take you 88 minutes speaking of the 80s and speaking of i suppose short circuit and and sort of tying it into dr strange love as well i didn't know how I felt about this film and I've actually watched it one of a half times <laughs> in preparation of this podcast I kind of ran out of time to watch it the full length but I was as I said born in 83 I saw this film when I must have been about 10 I remember it being at school uh, on a you know I'm sure I'm sure it was during free time but I can imagine a teacher saying um like computers are science watch war games <laughs> and that's oh, what we did it would always be the case when i was at school that the science department if it was like 
end of term or whatever. It was just like, now we're going to go watch a video all about the elements. And they put on the fifth element. Ha ha. <laughs> as, as you know, these lessons only last like 40 minutes. I think I watched the opening for the fifth, like the first oh 40 God. minutes of the fifth element, maybe about four or five times during my school um, wow. career. I did not know that. So so whenever you get past the 45 minute threshold of the fifth element, do you just get really excited? Like you're on untrodden paths. No, I, I kind of check out. So the teacher will bring you this video. And I remember being really, really bored by this film. And so I came to the film this time around. I, I think I might have watched it once more since then, which didn't really sway me other way either. And so when I came to this, I did start watching it with a certain reluctance, feeling I was going to get really bored. And I wouldn't say I was, but it did seem to move really slowly. Um, it's kind of like the Goonies effect, where you feel you in your head, you think, oh, in the Goonies, they spend the entire time sort of going on the quest to the pirate ship. Um, but in reality, they actually don't start that portion of the quest until about maybe an hour of shenanigans beforehand. <laughs> and in this one, I was just I was just sort of making notes of timings when, like, like David first speaks first first speaks to Whopper over like the quote unquote internet, um, and that's like maybe forty five minutes in, <laughs> and you know it's not like nothing happens, but. In my mind, coming back to this film, I expected, I kind of felt like the whole plot was going to be, he's out of NORAD. He's on a quest to try and clear his name or find out what's really going down. But that's sort of just the last half hour of the film. <laughs> and the rest of it is sort of like this, this creeping tension. I feel the real interesting thing about sort of 80s movies like this is I'm, I wasn't sure if this film was truly anti-nukes or not. Now, it kind of ends with the computer announcing that the only way to survive the game, aka Nuclear War, is to not play. But it, it, I feel like it stops short of saying owning nukes is problematic and, and wrong. I still feel like we, we still... We, I, it still felt a slightly glorified the military, even as it was saying things can go very wrong i don't know how you felt about what it was trying to say so i first saw this film maybe only for the first time seven or eight years ago and i think you know talking about video game movies and talking about 80s movies and things like that you you're naturally going to be nostalgic for the films you grew up with so it's interesting to visit like an 80s film through modern eyes without having any level of attachment or nostalgia for it because sometimes you worry oh will people actually like big trouble little china the way i like it or <laughs> you know there's there's like and i i think we found that in the case perhaps with say tron where you know despite attempts to watch it when at least i was younger and being bored out of my mind and then revisiting it now it's like yeah i i, I still can't get on with it um but with uh war games and I, I think it is a product of its time and i think you have to understand that you know back in the good old days of the early 80s um all people had to worry about was the constant threat of nuclear annihilation <laughs> so i i think it coming down one way or the other about like oh nuclear weapons are good or bad i don't think this is like the place 
for that and just because of the context um and i think there's potentially a darker story or a more political story and i think it doesn't it does still have some satirical bite to it like there's this moment where this tour group have been led around um <laughs> norad which is this kind of nuclear missile command center basically if there's going to be a soviet strike the us will retaliate from this center and they invite this guest to push a button this alarm goes off and panics everyone and like the tour guide is just like oh don't worry it's just showing up a sign saying welcome visitors from the city of birmingham i know everyone laughs and that lady for a moment thought she'd killed millions of people <laughs> and i was like <laughs> but that's the thing i i, I think it, it it understands these things and it and i think it plays around with this and yeah it, it doesn't necessarily say I mean, it says nuclear war is bad, but it doesn't go as far as to say, well, nuclear disarmament, therefore, is good. But that's just the kind of sort of film ends and we don't really get any idea of the repercussions. You know, the day the day is won, <laughs> but we don't, you know, everyone's like sort of cheering and David's like having his hair scuffed by yeah military official like haha cheeky little hacker doesn't matter no repercussions it's funny though one of the last lines is something along the lines of take us to defcon 5 defcon 1 being like worst case scenario nuclear war and they they say that but they also like have throughout the film said how russia is kind of reacting to all the weird things america's doing at the moment so i'm like well, what's russia doing right now <laughs> yeah i i I don't necessarily have a problem with it doing sort of one thing or the other. I think what the film does translate effectively, and this is why I, I actually really do like the film, is that the threat of global thermonuclear war is quite terrifying. And there are many times, and maybe it's just me, but... I found any time where you see the, the map of the world and these blips, these apocalyptic blips of nuclear airstrikes basically wiping out the global population, I found it really terrifying. <laughs> and I think the film does a smart thing when it has these kind of threats, particularly early on, and you have the war room panicking as you know, these Russian military strikes sort of appear and then disappear. And, you know, they think all these bomb threats are genuine. And it's juxtaposed with teenage Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy just laughing it up in his bedroom, drinking tab and enjoying <laughs> the fact that they've just sort of um, decided to nuke Las Vegas and their hometown, home city of <laughs> Seattle. Just like, yeah, let's do it because we're going to play the Soviets in this game. Um, I mean, I think I think there is a Google Maps um, plugin where, or something along those lines, where you could find out how much of damage a bomb would do to where to whatever you know, GPS point you put it at. So, like, you put it on your house, you think, yeah, no, I probably wouldn't survive that. <laughs> Launch order confirmed. Target selection complete. Time on target sequence complete. Yield selection complete. 
Begin countdown. T minus 60. All right, let's do it. Insert launch key. Stand by. Launch key inserted. Roger. On my mark. Rotate launch key to set. Three, two, one. Mark. T minus 50. Sir. T minus 40. Well, enable missiles. Number one, enable. Two, enable. Three, enable. Four, five, Straight five, somebody in the goddamn six, phone. Seven, eight, nine, ten. All missiles enabled. Minus 30. Get me wing command post on your direct That's line. That's not the correct procedure, Captain. Try SAC headquarters on the HF. That's not the correct procedure. Screw the procedure. I want somebody on the goddamn phone before I kill 20 million people. T minus 20. I got nothing here. They might have been knocked out already. Right. On my mark, rotate launch keys to launch. Roger, ready 14, to go to launch. 14, 13, 13 12, 12, 11. 11. Seven, six, five. Sir, we have a launch four, order. Three. Put your hand on the key, two, sir. One. Launch. Sir, we are at launch. Turn your key. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Turn your key, sir. I mean, I do feel it was very tense at multiple points. Um, the opening is pretty incredible, actually, because. I mean, that could be in like Strange Love or, or, or any sort of serious minded non-family film about nuclear war. Um, we've got these two guys going into, I think it all takes place in NORAD. Mm. I think it's just a, no, it's like a, a nuclear silo. There's a nuclear bomb there. And these two guys, they they sort of go down to the, um, where the control room, there's like another, this is like another era of ginormous doors like Tron. They go through several huge doors and there's a sign also saying anyone urinating in this area will be discharged <laughs> did you see that i did not see that that's brilliant i guess they're that's kind brilliant. of like locked in that room and it's just like sorry you'll be discharged from the military if you um if you piss here i did make a note about the security of this place because when they get the signal to fire off a nuclear bomb these two american guys they have to like break some plastic to get some launch codes so they type in the codes they get some other codes from oh, somewhere that, else that big red book is like i don't mm. know i just found that chilling just when they have this well, massive big red book and all these big red things it was just uh, i sort of felt yeah. like they're already behind a giant door couldn't we just have a post-it note with like the launch codes on <laughs> i don't know but it ends with um one of the guys and it's always this moment if i flip this switch if I turn this key, I'm going to be killing millions of people. And then like the guy actually says, I want to call somebody before I kill 20 million people. And his, his second guy is there with a gun. Blood Rain's Michael Madsen. You know what? I read 
<laughs> that it was Michael Madsen way after I watched this film. I was like, oh God, I was wish I was watching out for that. <laughs> but yeah, he holds the gun to his like his um co-worker. I don't know what you call them in the militaries. Uh colleague? <laughs> colleague. <laughs> I don't know. There is a word for it. Um yeah, and that and the scene ends with the him holding the gun to his colleague's head. And then we have like these these credits, and I was like, what happened? <laughs> like, did he get shot in the head? Did the world get nuked? Is this like set a million years after society rebuilt itself? <laughs> it takes a long time to get to the point where these guys around the table say, that was a test we just watched. And what it proved is there's a high proportion of instances where humans don't want to kill people with nuclear bombs. Um so anyway, it's very striking. And my other favorite bits of tension were, I think, when the penny is starting to drop and um, David is speaking to Whopper saying, sorry, is this, are you really firing nukes at Russia or is this a game? Is this real life or a game? And Whopper says, what's the difference? I mean, that is like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it makes you think about all those times like uh you're playing a video game and killing all these npcs and no one thinks about the family of an npc i mean i guess that's the whole concept of reboot but <laughs> no it's an interesting question about i think normalization of psychotic behavior like grand theft auto and things like do is playing too much too many violent oh my gosh we're getting to the violent video game debates we're better stop right now <laughs> <laughs> um but i mean just i feel at certain points though the film presents us with with tension or, or, or acts like everything's tense. And I was thinking, but but everyone knows this is not real, right? Everyone knows this. Because I think literally there's one point when I said out loud, I was watching this with headphones, I said out loud, this film's a piece of shit. <laughs> because despite me despite me really enjoying a lot of it, um like the penultimate sequence of this film, I thought this was the final sequence, which is why I thought it was shit. But the penultimate sequence is like everyone waiting for these bombs to hit America on the big screen. And the whole war room is silent and everyone's super tense and the music is tense and like, the camera's tracking into the computer screens and then you know, Matthew Broderick is there and everything. But we, we the audience, Matthew Broderick and... The creator of Whopper is also present, Dr. Faulkner. Falcon. Basically all Falcon, sorry. Um, all the important people of this film know it's fake. The only people who are tense in that scene are like the military people. And I guess they have got dry mouths because they're taking it on faith that these nukes are fake and not coming to America. But it just seemed really weird that like for me there was no tension because we know these bombs aren't going to go off the tense bit came like immediately afterwards so i said i said out loud this film's a piece of shit and then um whopper starts doing it for real and that's like 10 minutes or five minute sequence i enjoyed where they have to trick it um to not really set off nukes but um yeah i mean did did you in that final sequence, which I was describing, or that semi-final sequence I was describing, were you feeling tense at all? I think there's a there's a tension because the tension is not that 
the you know because the main leads or whatever you want to call them they know that it's fake but they don't know how the u.s military is going to respond so there is the tension in the emergency getting them to norad in time to make sure you know the general doesn't start calling off the bombs but it's always that moment where it's just like i'm pretty sure this is fake but Mm. what if what if i'm wrong (laughs) you know i mean yeah it's a bit difficult to tell if you've you have seen the film before even if it was years ago i knew the film didn't end with the world going kablambo i suppose yeah um so i but i think it still mines that tension well and i think through the the you know the sort of performances and and the vibe it generates and i think it also lends itself and and it, it kind of has that feeling at the start where it is kind of well what's better getting a computer to do this or a human to do this and there's this real kind of like jock versus nerd vibe which carries through it where you have like the big brash general who's got all his confidence in his military men etc and then you've got the you know the nerds and the professors with their brown suits and everyone has facial a hair <laughs> Uh, yeah, we said that at the same time. I know the general doesn't, though at one point he sniffs the cigar in such a way that it looks like a moustache. But, like, yeah, so many 80s moustaches. There was this rather smart-looking sort of security guard with white gloves. Like a, He had a, he was giving me really real sort of Wario vibes, or Mario vibes. I, I say Wario, I suppose, but he also spends half his film trying to bother a, a female secretary lady and... Like she's, I mean, we actually hear in the background him saying, am I bothering you? Yes. Do you want me to leave? Yes. And we don't hear what his response to that is. Maybe he just leaves. Well, no, because he then has to unlock the door, etc. But yeah, I I actually, like, I appreciated those little touches. It reminded me a bit of Die Hard. It's one of those films where even small characters they'll give them like a little grace note or a little bit of dialogue or a scene. And it's just like, we don't need to have the security guard be a bit of a pest sort of tratting up the secretary saying, I hear you're quite the tennis player. Well, looking at a tennis trophy of hers and, and that kind of stuff. And I think it just goes to the, the, you know, what you were saying about whether it comes on down on the side of our nukes, a good thing or a bad thing is the military, a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's, it's kind of, saying that yeah you can be authority figures but also it's slightly mocking them as well i think it it has that sort of teen movie vibe where it's about grown-ups are kind of buffoons and it takes a whiz kid smart aleck teen to you know get one up on pretty much all of them in every situation you have like the generals and you have like quintessential authority figure james tolkien uh, principal from back to the future appearing as a fbi agent and it doesn't go as far as yeah um i think even like one of the ever have hair yeah (laughs) i think one of the um one of the military personnel as well as played by michael ensign i think his name is who's like the hotelier in ghostbusters yeah, I was um, so I was so pleased with myself because I know that guy. Where is he from? Where is he from? And I didn't have to Google it. I was like, ah, <laughs> yes. And I also I also read 
But actually, this came up because I was watching this on Amazon Prime, and I pressed pause, and you have that X-ray thing, and it says different cast members who are appearing in the scene. And all of a sudden, it said William H. Macy. Oh. And I spent the whole film looking for William H. Macy as a NORAD officer. And I got so frustrated that I looked it up afterwards, and apparently he did one of those random roles interviews things but it was with yahoo movie news or something where they go through their cv and they mention apparently you're in war games and he's like i have no idea am i i don't remember being in war games apparently he was down as being in silence of the lambs but it turned out he might have looped some dialogue or they used uh. some dialogue of his in one point but he said he has no idea about well, like, war games in the slightest recently i think is it is it jared leto or leto Let's say Leto. Well, he said he was interviewed and he was asked about his time in the film um, Urban Legends. And he's like, I don't remember being in that film. And he was told, you're one of like the main characters. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, dear. So who is actually in the film? <laughs> um, well, we mentioned Matthew Broderick, so we should probably talk about him and the character of David Lightman, who... It was his, I guess, breakthrough role. I was um, going to ask if this was before or after Ferris Bueller. This was and it before. Must be, it must be before. But it does make me wonder what kind of kid Matthew Broderick was at school. Because he's kind of... He doesn't show up for a full week in this film to school. And Ferris Bueller is all about taking a day off school. So, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Matthew Broderick's like an idiot. <laughs> Or maybe just a really good actor. I'm going to go with the latter. Well, they they sort of mention the James Tolkien character, I think, later on, says that he's a classic case for recruitment for the Soviets because mm. of like his profile and that he is... He writes his R's backwards. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the red education. He likes the colour red, yeah. They found a hammer and a sickle in his closet. <laughs> and he just dropped out of his pencil case. <laughs> Um, but I think I I think they would have mentioned that he's not very good at his uh like grades, but he is intellectually curious, etc. So like obviously prototype communist. I guess that's established earlier on because he's introduced in a video arcade playing Gallagher. He's late to class. He gets an F on his exam, and he back chats uh, with the teacher and makes regular trips seemingly to the principal's office because he's clearly got an attitude problem. Well, like I kept like knocking against funny things. I had to really turn off my brain. I mean, I think I've said this before on the podcast that like in eighties films and things, you just don't get nitpicky. Maybe it's like only, I feel like this culture, I mean, we're doing this video game movies podcast where we sort of pick them apart and it's a whole lot of fun, but, like there, there, there's some things which kind of kind of confused me, I guess, because I was thinking about it so hard. For example, when he go when he sneaks into the classroom, I thought I thought it was hilarious how he was sneaking in just right in front of the teacher. <laughs> he's like the teacher's back wasn't even turned. We cut to the teacher and he's just he's just sort of face forward, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. It's not, but he's just sheepishly arriving late. It's not him trying to sneak in. But there's um like there's a bit later on where he's like changing his grades 
using their school computer and and to i mean you mentioned he's going to the principal office all the time we do find that he's doing that sort of on purpose because when he's at the principal's office he can sneak a look at what password the computer is using like it's written down and then so that's kind of that's a clever thing about him i liked but um he changes his grades for him and for his uh female friend it feels very much like a female friend and not a girlfriend and that's another thing i quite liked i mean naturally there is a bit of a kiss towards the end but he seems completely unaware of her femininity (laughs) and um but anyway he changes their grades and then they go go on and start playing the game thermal nuclear war and cause this freak out at norad and then like the very next day he comes home and they see on the news there's a freak out norad and his parents there's this like there's this comedy moment where his parents are like you're gonna get what's coming to you because you got all these great grades and in a moment it's like oh that's funny haha but i was also wondering so so when do these grades get sent to the parents he changed the grade like that day and then they get sent i just maybe it was the end of term or i don't know the timeline was messing with my head a bit but like you know i am overthinking this i yeah i mean if if you're overthinking it too much then there's clearly things like where does he get all the money to buy all these clearly very expensive computers um we know that he hacks into a bank but he can't be funneling all of his all of his like funds funding his like computer hacking activities i mean Mm. I think we need to talk about the parents just briefly because they are fucking nuts. (laughs) And I think, I don't know whether it's one of those things where you don't see them very much, but clearly there's a lot going on and the film just chooses not to explain it, but you kind of maybe get an idea that David is the product of a household with, completely crazy parents their key scene is a dinner scene and this is where david gets the idea because he sees an advert for a computer company called protovision and it says we've got some great new games coming out and the reason he ends up hacking into norad is because actually he's trying to hack into this computer games company to find out their latest releases before they're revealed um but his parents are just having this like conversation and the dad is buttering a piece of bread. Mm. And then he wipes the buttered bread all over a corn on the cob to mm. apply the butter, which is a technique I've not seen anywhere else. I thought that was a genius technique myself. <laughs> I mean, but, genius if you want to get a heart attack, but still. And if that wasn't odd enough, then the mum ha- admits to the fact that he, she hasn't even cooked the corn on the cob as he bites into it raw and she says, oh, it's good for all the vitamins. And she's just happily munching this raw corn of the cob while the dad is just like aghast at his wife's like Yeah, and he didn't, notice, he didn't notice that the corn of the cob wasn't hot to the touch. Yeah, after <laughs> smearing it with that bread. It's just... That's just that's purely like blaming the woman. It's just like that's that sort of relationship. It's your fault. I didn't realize I was holding cold corn on the cob here. Yeah, it's it's like a very bizarre touch to what I think in terms of the the teen performances, at least I think from 
Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy and, and their relationship and the connection that they had together. I really liked their performances. I liked how they felt kind of like genuine in terms of goofing around with each other. It was it was cute. It was good team acting, I felt. Yeah, I would agree. It's I think what makes us watchable, even if I wasn't completely gelling with it, is we've seen a few sort of films of teenagers in which and they're just really really irritating and i think i can compare this to like um arcade where our heroes were sort of teenage video game enthusiasts and they seemed like really like horrible people (laughs) um and sometimes i think like trying to be cool or comes across as just being like an arsehole but as i said before matthew broderick seems like a really kind of normal kid but i think also with the parents it was doing i thought it was doing something i don't know if it's intentional but i i read it as quite clever that these parents also seem like completely oblivious to what their son is doing yeah and you know how i mentioned that like david seemed completely oblivious to like um jennifer i mean there's there's who is like the, the, the female main character um like there's a point where jennifer is like holding david between her legs like to stop him from going anywhere and she's doing it playfully and i don't think she's doing it to get a kiss or anything like that but he's kind of completely focused on his computers and things and but like not in like a nerdy no girls allowed way uh, I, I just i just got a sense that the like his parents david is sort of oblivious to like the bigger picture a bit and i think part of the horror for him is realizing that his actions are having repercussions on a sort of thermonuclear scale (laughs) you know and i think that ties into what like a lot of kids might feel a lot of people might feel where when they sort of are completely out of their depth a bit hi dad david david come in here what did I do? Plenty, Mr. Plenty. You have just passed all of your classes this semester. Congratulations, Dad. Show this to your dad. Honey, David has something to show you. What's that? Here, Dad. Oh. Oh. This is good. For three and a half minutes last I'm night, so the proud defense of forces you. of the United States went on a full scale nuclear alert. How many months believing that the Soviet Union had launched a surprise missile right. attack. A no, Pentagon spokesman no, places no, blame no, for the error on a computer malfunction, emphasizing that the problem has been corrected. For more on the story, let's go live via satellite to Washington, D.C. And News 4's Tim Hillard. Well, that's Here your phone. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, David, congratulations. This one will be a pleasure to sign. Hello? Are you watching the news? Jennifer, yeah, I'm watching. It could be. Oh, Jesus, Jennifer, what am I gonna do? They're gonna come get me. I'm really screwed. I'm screwed. What? What? No, shh, calm down, shh, calm down, calm down. Listen. If they were so smart, they would have found you already, right? Yeah. Okay, so all you have to do is is throw the number away and don't call it again. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. Ah, huh. maybe they didn't trace the call, huh? Right. Maybe they didn't trace the call. I'm sure they didn't trace the call. And listen, 
All you have to do is act normal, okay? We'll both act normal and everything is going to be fine. Okay? Okay. Okay. Oh, God, this is so unbelievable. Listen, do you think maybe I can call Michelle and tell her? <laughs> no, Jennifer, I'll call her. But, you know, we are talking about Dave a lot, but I did feel like Jennifer, like a, a really refreshing character as well, as, as well, you know, she, she, she just likes hanging out with, with, she just likes to hang out. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Just trying to, I'm just trying to convey, I don't know. It's just, she just seemed like a, a normal kid as well, a normal teen as well, who just wants to have good grades. She's like, and initially she's like, you can't change my grades. You can't do that. And then she has a change of heart. And there's that moment where Davis says, oh, I've, I've done it already, which I found slightly creepy. But then she did want her grades trained, changed. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, great, good performances. There's only, there's only one moment, I think, when David is on the phone to Jennifer and he's learnt that he's he's just watched on the news that the NORAD has gone crazy um, because of his actions. I thought Matthew Broderick was pretending to be scared because his performance was really bad then. He's like, what am I going to do? Oh no, I'm going to be in real trouble. And I thought he was like doing a comical pretend scared, but no, he's meant to be really scared in that bit. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit hard sometimes because we're obviously projecting the Matthew Broderick that we know now onto the performance Mm. as well. So maybe that's another reason why uh, it's like just interesting to watch in that respect, um, particularly as someone who really doesn't like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't really, I, I haven't seen too many of the John Hughes teen movies. That's definitely like a kind of gap in my 80s movie knowledge. I did like The Breakfast Club when I did eventually see it. I could see the appeal there, but I just couldn't gel with um, Ferris Bueller. I think John Hughes films have sort of changed from this is real life. This is like with the breakfast club in particular, you're like, Oh, these, these are real people are real teenagers. And then like decades later, you're like, these are the most archetypal cliched sort of <laughs> unrealistic characters I've ever seen. <laughs> and then there is that sort of, sort of icky sort of Greece style ending where people sort of change their entire characters. And it's viewed as a great thing. But I mean, that's the eighties, <laughs> you know. I, I watched, um, I guess, spoilers for Beetlejuice, I suppose. But like, I watched Beetlejuice at the cinema, and it was weird to watch it with an audience because, like, the film ends in a sort of happy way, but but also like, Winona Ryder has gone from a cool goth girl to like you just bog standard sort of Catholic school girl, and it's like, hmm, I liked her when she was cool. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a victory for the character? I think there's like a nice moment and maybe it's a little better performance, but later on they're sort of realizing that there's potentially only nine hours until the end of the world. And there's this moment where, you know, it's sort of dawning on him and the David character saying like, I wish I didn't know any about, about any of this. I wish you could be like anyone else and just sort of, I suppose, die in blissful ignorance. But like the thing that kicks it off is, the fact that he realizes they're stuck on this island and he can't swim and it's just like he's not like oh i wish i had kissed a girl i mean he does get to kiss a girl but <laughs> you know i wish these things he did, but it's he just... didn't have to tell her he knew it was on its way <laughs> but I mean, he's it's like just... oh, what would you do if you only had nine hours to live 
kiss for nine hours. Yeah. It's as far as his imagination goes. Um, but it's just the thing that sort of like triggers this, you know, justified uh, moment of, of uh, realization and a breakdown is the fact that he can't swim and he never learned to swim. And I think that's like, I think that's good scripting. And I think that's good sort of, it speaks to the character and it's just an interesting mm. take on impending doom to have like a, a something which is maybe not so significant and he hadn't really thought about it. And then all of a sudden it dawns on him that he's never done something. All the things like you'll never do. Yeah. So I, 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 I think that's, uh, I like that. And, you know, this film was nominated for um, best script best screenplay at the Oscars um, and also nominated for best sound and best cinematography too. Um, and I think it is a, it's a good script as well. I think it's like, yeah, I, I like the, the different, the way the story progresses. And like I said, those little touches, those little bits of dialogue here and there, which just adds more character to what could be either very silly thriller or a very dry one i'm glad you mentioned that bit by the river though because i've got a note here saying i zoned out during the heart to heart by the water's edge ask rory to fill me in (laughs) (laughs) i was feeling for the characters and you were just like oh what nine hours until the end of the world boring i mean as i said earlier i kind of felt i mean they get to this island and i thought the whole film was about getting to this island, but it's actually really, I think the majority of the film is him. It's kind of, it's kind of him getting to NORAD and then escaping from NORAD. And, you know, for good or ill, I feel just modern films would cut out so much of his escape because he, he gets locked in this medical room with, I said, you know, super Mario on the other side. Um, And, and then he use he just he uses various tools to break out of the room and then crawl through some corridors and then join a tour and then he gets he asks Jennifer to wire him some money so he can take a boat to the island. Yeah, that this 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 middle section is definitely the film at its saddiest. It's it sort of it expects you to enjoy the thrill of someone going through an air vent um yeah. very slowly and there's not much it's it's like a good half an hour of escape plan I, I as i said for good or ill and i legitimately mean that because i guess there's one school of thought which would be he you know he would he breaks out of the room and then we cut to like him running away out he's outdoors already and then there's other people who like to see every every beat and I will say though this film must have sold um little personal tape machines you know he's got like in his pocket like a little what I used to have them a little micro cassette type thing I think he picked a, it was cuz he was in the medical center and there was a dictaphone he Oh swiped. that's the word I was looking for dictaphone I had a dictaphone once to do my sort of Alan Partridge style ideas <laughs> on <laughs> but um you know I imagine he uses a recording of dial tones to make a connect call or something and i can just imagine loads of kids going out and buying that and it not working <laughs> i was more of a talk boy from home alone too I, guy. I was getting talk boy so much i mean speaking of like weird voices whopper does speak and i feel the diction is so bad 
that I think it must have been a genuine computer voice. I don't think it was a person putting on a person putting on a computer voice. I have no idea, but I just get a sense that it was really useful that he was talking and writing text at the same time because that really helped. <laughs> yeah, like I said, he he gets to this island in the pursuit of the creator of Whopper, a Dr. Falcon. Now, we first learn of Dr. Falcon when uh, David is trying to find what the password is to get in the back door of Whopper. Um, rather than we are we are told, and and you know, it's the eighties, so they have to explain what a back door is in a computer system. But I think even today, I appreciate that sort of information. It seems a bit weird that David, being a computer whiz, doesn't know what a back door to a computer system is. But you know, it's useful for the audience, and he is told that the best way to find out what a backdoor password is is to sort of go through the personal history of the person who designed the program. Turns out the name is Joshua. The password is Joshua because that was the name of Dr. Falcon's son. And he died along with his mum, Falcon's wife. Mrs. Dr. Falcon died in a car crash. And I don't think the film establishes if it was driven by an evil robot <laughs> and that's why he hates technology <laughs> um, but he, he the one thing he does like is dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of when they find him on his island and he's he's presumed dead himself but he's covered his tracks or yeah the government he died 65 has... million years ago <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so like the government has uh mates sort of hidden him away as as part of his deal to leave norad and sort of fate his death in in that respect but yeah it's definitely like he's introduced piloting a remote control pterodactyl and it's basically like i'm not into robots anymore i'm into dinosaurs <laughs> i mean i i was watching this film writing some notes and i said god that looks like a dinosaur oh it is a dinosaur <laughs> he flies it at his um at our heroes I mean, bit eccentric, isn't he? I, you know, enjoyed this choice. He could, it's just, he could so easily just be like a man rotting in his house and there's lots of dusty computers and stuff. But no, he's really into dinosaurs. <laughs> um, but then he does this like speech, and I was just about how. I think he is sort of jonesing for an Armageddon. Armageddon. He's he reminded me so much of like Doctor Isaacs in Resident Evil, where he's yeah. saying, um, "Oh, humanity is on the path for destruction. If we all get nuked, who cares? I think maybe bumblebees will be the next dominant species." <laughs> and he's got this. I was just like, "God, you must be really fun at parties." Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, I know his wife and kid die, but I can't remember how. I don't know, time seems quite flexible because, as I said, like like those school reports, like his wife and kid died how long ago and he's made a computer in the meantime and gave the passwords. I, I don't know. But like the, like after the speech by the river you were telling me about, uh, which, you know, for the audience, I did watch. I just didn't have my full attention at that moment. <laughs> um he has an immediate change of heart and appears in a helicopter. Sadly, not a dinosaur-shaped dinocopter. That would have been <laughs> something. But um, there's no real reason for him to 
be really against helping our heroes and then suddenly deciding to help our heroes i mean his his realization i guess comes between the frames as they say in the comic book world yeah i i just yeah after presenting this presentation of stop motion animation dinosaur movies and saying that extinction is part of the natural order and that he's deliberately moved to a place which is within like three miles of a target area so they get instantly vaporized and might have to survive the holocaust um Mm. yeah to then suddenly be like all right kids actually the your passionate youthfulness has convinced me otherwise that we should not allow the human species to die but like i like the way the david character is like saying won't you make a simple phone call like he could call it off and it's just like i get it i procrastinate I've had times where I'd rather face nuclear devastation than make a phone call. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I don't like speaking to people oh, on the phone. Sp- I know. Like, literally, I sent an email to somebody today and they phoned back and I was like, oh, bring me death. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, it reminds me, why, why did he use this helicopter when he could have made a phone call? That seemed a bit ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's because it's the 80s and 80s films need helicopters. I really wanted to see a graph or a chart of the, how many helicopters appeared in 80s films versus today. And I bet you there's a severe decline. I think there was probably a very short spike of stealth bomber enthusiasm as well between sort oh, of yeah. mid 80s to maybe early 2000s with the release of the film Stealth. That's probably what happened. The stealth bomber kids came in and helicopters weren't cool anymore it didn't matter if they were controlled by ais and had um chief brody piloting it <laughs> uh, you've got a helicopter it's all about concord now <laughs> well a new concord's been announced hasn't it that's um, <laughs> really like literally the other day and you know it's uh just looks exactly like the old concords oh but, good um, yeah so those guys can they'll be happy but you know nothing will be a uh, a, pro- a rotating propeller at the top. That's that's where the cool kids are from the eighties. <laughs> uh, speaking of speaking of cool, when uh, they do find out about Falcon and David showing Jennifer some video of him, she says he's amazing looking. I know. And then like, they say that he wasn't very old when he died. And then how old? And David says forty one. And then she says that's pretty old. I think that was that was a bit of good humor. I think <laughs> <laughs> because clearly, I think this film was being made by people who were probably not far off forties. So that was that's a good bit of a, I guess, it points to their lack of self awareness. I mean, talking about lack of of awareness, I mean, I, I've just realized perhaps the reason why Falcon decides to help the kids is that he is watching this dinosaur video and throughout the speech he's talking about how evolution is like an ebb and flow and is humanity's time is humanity's time to die out but then his film got to the point where an asteroid hits the earth and you think oh wait a minute it wasn't evolution at all <laughs> <laughs> like it was an asteroid sent by russia <laughs> well apparently the role of falcon was originally going to be lined up for the Beatles' John Lennon. Wow. Who apparently, through, um, I think, one of the writers or producers of the film knew him and he was interested in the role. Um, wow. Though obviously um, that didn't happen. <laughs> Do you think one of his like crazy notes was, 
Oh, I'd only do this role if the guy's really obsessed with dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's in a real dinosaur like high right then. I was like, I just put dinosaurs in this script and I'll be in this film. Do they have to be real dinosaurs? No, they can be they can be like remote control dinosaurs, but you know. And there was a sigh of relief. Like, fuck, I was going to have to think about how I was going to put dinosaurs, living dinosaurs in this film. Now, children, come on over here. I'm going to tell you a bedtime story. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Once upon a time, there lived a magnificent race of animals. Dominated the world through age after age. They ran and they swam and they fought and they flew. Until suddenly... Quite recently, they disappeared. Nature just gave up and started again. We weren't even apes then. We were just these smart little rodents hiding in the rocks. And when we go, nature will start again with the bees, probably. Nature knows when to give up, David. So with Falcon's change of heart, he stoops the kids up in a helicopter um, and they fly off just in time to, to get to NORAD. And as, as we mentioned, you know, Making they a quick pit stop at like dinosaur golf. I shouldn't have stopped for that haircut. <laughs> um, uh, but yes, they, they kind of let all the bombs fall. These phantom bombs uh fall on the u.s bases and everyone is like nah actually it's fine we're alive it's all good um and then yeah as we said whopper decides to finish the game once and for all and the way they kind of get around trying to beat whopper at this game is to try and force whopper to play other games Mm. and they go through very long like they go through like chess and they go through poker. And it's just like, no, no, no. You've got seconds before Whopper learns all 10 digits of the launch code to launch all these bombs. Why not play, like, the shortest game? And then they do... It does dawn on them. Oh, yeah, tic-tac-toe. Because, as mentioned previously, Falcon has said that he didn't have time to teach Whopper the most important lesson, which was futility. And brings up tic-tac-toe as a game, which is pointless because it's always going to be a tie. So they use tic-tac-toe, they say number of players zero, and by that way, Whopper starts to go through all the different scenarios of tic-tac-toe and realises it's a shitty game. Yeah, well, I always lose that. <laughs> I'm like an easy mark when it comes to <laughs> what we're going to say in the UK, noughts and crosses. Though I used to play one person noughts and crosses, I like turn off my brain and quick as I can, just do the grid and then just not think and see how often I could beat myself. And, I, and I'd often, I think I would beat myself as much as I'd lose against myself. And um, <laughs> I don't know, if people see me do that, they, they confirm to themselves that I am insane. Makes you wonder whether they could make a movie version of Solitaire, though. Like the or card Space game. Pinball. Or Hover. Or Hover. I mean, hasn't a Minesweeper game been threatened on occasion? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, they, there was the Hurt Locker. I think that was the... <laughs> right. Catherine Bigelow's Minesweeper. Yeah, Catherine Bigelow's <laughs> Minesweeper. Um, I mean, as I mentioned before, this for me was the most dramatic bit. For some reason, I just I wasn't with it in the first part of the sequence. But when they're trying to work out how to defeat the computer, 
that was when I was like, oh shit, what are they going to do? Um, I think I remember during the sequence, there's a lady who has to do a countdown saying 30 seconds. And then it makes you think about all films where they have the sort of countdown and they go five, four, three, two, one. And I thought, do you want to spend the rest of your life saying five, four, three, two, one? I don't know. I might just say something funny at one, like, like I don't know, Willie's. <laughs> and then that's everyone's last thought. Five, four, three, two, bum. <laughs> Bums. <laughs> oh, dear. And then, like, new- Armageddon didn't happen, and then everyone would turn to you. And you'd be like, oh, come on, I didn't wee anywhere. I just said bums. <laughs> you can't discharge me. <laughs> but yeah, I thought this was smart. It's a, it's a smart ending. I mean, I was watching this film thinking, God, it's so rare to watch a film where there isn't like a fight at the end of this <laughs> fight. Um, it's just working out how to defeat a computer. And uh, yeah, I thought it was earned. I think this sort of ending sometimes doesn't get earned, but I felt this was earned. And, and like I said, my the only thing which stuck in my mind a little bit was how what was russia thinking about all this because they've established at the start they are reacting they are sending out their like warplanes and subs in a reaction to america and you know are they though maybe i just sort of got that sense maybe i misread that i mean you know maybe i wasn't paying attention to that, that bit it would just be rather sad if the film ends with them all looking up to the sky and seeing like smoke trails of nukes flying overhead. <laughs> That's like that would be that your your annoying sort of sort of pulling the rug type ending that so many films like to do just to flip the bird at the audience, I suppose. Yeah, just the 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 way they win effectively is um through the kind of tic-tac-toe pointless game scenario that logic is then applied to the global thermonuclear war scenario. So you have that chilling moment where you see the whole globe get obliterated repeatedly again and again. There's all these flashing strobe lights of all these blips appearing, showing all the devastation. And it says, it it basically concludes that it doesn't matter whether the US or USSR or any different number of global pacts strike first, no matter what happens, um, no one wins. But it'd be kind of funny, though, if, like, oh, no, actually, there is one scenario, and that'd be, like, if Fiji launched nuclear, <laughs> like, weapons at that point. It's like, oh, no, Fiji wins. Or, like, just some other country which doesn't even have nuclear arms. Or maybe just just don't use nukes. He's, like, sent poison <laughs> yeah. into the water supply of the rest of the world. Global the thermonuclear war is, uh, is over, but biochemical warfare has begun yep and then the logo changes into the umbrella logo and this is a resident evil prequel and love it love yeah perfect i have improved war games (laughs) um but yeah it finishes with whopper admitting that global thermonuclear war is a strange game the only winning move is not to play how about a nice game of chess Halfway through that sentence, somebody, the janitor unplugs it to hoover the room and they're like, oh, why didn't we do that in the first place? Because they said if they unplug it, it will register that as detecting that NORAD has been destroyed. Okay. Pay attention to the film, Harry. You'll get your answers. You know what would have watched this film with more attention? A computer. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, 
I, I feel like talking about this film has made me appreciate it more. Um, I said I watched this one and a half times because the first time, as I said, I, I kind of felt a little bit like I couldn't get it. And the second time, funnily enough, I listened to a lot of it as opposed to watch it. So I, I'm sorry, cinephiles, if that's just something abhorrent to you. But, you know, I just decided to listen to it as a radio play. And I feel like I got the tension a lot more. I think I would have been a slightly lost if I hadn't watched it first. But um, yeah, I just think watching it a second time and talking about it, I think it does. I think even the first time I watched this, I feel like I did a lot more right than wrong. I have a slight issue of the pacing, but all in all, I'd still like really recommend it. If, if for as historical value, as much as it's entertainment value. Yeah, and I think it definitely is a film which is good on its own terms, uh, but obviously it's important in terms of its legacy, I'd say as well. I think sometimes, I think the films which make it through the years and considered classics, as it were, um, have something of value either as a kind of entertainment piece or as an influential piece, because the amount of dreck which was released in the 80s, which no one ever talks about or hears about anymore, apart from VHS enthusiasts, you know, people talk about how great cinema was then. Oh, there was so much tosh at the same time as well. Um, but I think this film sort of holds up on on both levels. I mean, we're talking about it uh, almost 38 years to the day that it was released. Ooh. It was released June 6th. 1983 um and yeah as well as the austrian nominations it was a hit it was the fifth most successful film at the u.s box office that year it was made for 12 million raked in 80 million uh total and uh ronald reagan watched it on its opening weekend at camp david in a private screening and it was directly as a result of this film that they started to introduce laws against computer security so yay <laughs> Yay. And we were still here, so we didn't die a nuclear fire. Yeah. It's always a silent yet, isn't there? <laughs> We've got what? plenty of other things to worry about now, yeah. not just nukes. Here's a list <laughs> to end the podcast with. <laughs> Take care and don't have nightmares. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, like, as we said, this was like the first sort of mainstream depiction, I suppose, of hacking and. I guess this film has become something of a touchstone and in some respects that's a good thing and in other respects you get um, whole chapters dedicated to it in Ready Player One. Gosh, I can't we got this far in and I forgot that... I forgot I reminded you <laughs> that in the book Ready Player One there's a whole chapter where the main character has to repeat. He has to sort of cosplay as Ready Player One, as David, in the entire... He has to do the whole film from beginning to end. I guess it sort of forgets that David doesn't show up in this film until 15 minutes in. That's what I'm telling you about the odd pace. But, yeah, when I was when, when we went to see Ready Player One, the movie, which is like the... Was it the first film we did? or the, No, it was the second film we did on this podcast. I was, like, really wondering, how are they going to do this scene when he acts out War Games? And they scuppered that sequence entirely and decided to just do Warner Brothers films, <laughs> which um, 
yeah you watch these films like the lego movie and stuff you're like wow so many so many different ips and then you you do account you're like well we're like they're all warner brothers aren't they so <laughs> this being an mgm film we uh yeah didn't get to see that in the movie ready player one which i think is a good thing because that was i felt even reading that sequence not being the biggest war games aficionado i found that very tiresome and i think it yeah because when i read that chapter i hadn't seen war games at that point so it was even more like lost on me that like this main character is getting really enthusiastic about repeating every single line of dialogue in the movie and thinking how cool he is doing it <laughs> have you have you read ready player two yet <laughs> no uh, that, that, that might be in our future if no. if they announce a film i will read it but i don't know is what would you threat? rather what would you rather watch more ready player two or 2008's war games the dead code which is a direct to video sequel uh, the synopsis of which is the united states department of homeland security is led to believe an american teen hacker playing a terrorist attack simulator game online is a real terrorist out to destroy the u.s um having watched the trailer of war games the dead code um it would depend on which has the shortest running time (laughs) yep i guess it's that sort of a film <laughs> oh i like oh see again i found it, i found it weird this this film we're talking about was an hour and 50 minutes so it's like does it need to be feels like a 90 minute movie man well i mean speaking of spin-offs there was there was yes war games the dead code released to mark the 25th anniversary of uh war games um but also more recently um i guess to mark the 35th anniversary 2018 does that i'm catch up yeah um there was hashtag war games an interactive series which was um uh developed by sam barlow who i neglected to mention as being one of the makers um of silent hill shattered memories in the silent Mm -hmm. hill game and has latterly gone on to create her story and telling lies which are interactive fmv modern games where you have to sort of find out the mystery using real actors and real performers and this hashtag war games uh web series which was released on echo eko which is a platform i have no idea existed (laughs) um and maybe it's still available i tried to play it earlier but I just launched it and it just said loading and then didn't go anywhere. So I was going to say, and you're the reason why nuclear bombs went off in the <laughs> US, but we decided to do the podcast anyway. But I mean, it's it still suggests that the Ward Games name is still a thing. You know, even mm-hmm. if you know someone decided to do a sort of interactive series version of it uh, only in the past few years, so definitely feels like one of these things which get remade eventually but like i mean that plot i just read for the dead code sounds like such a 2000s um plot doesn't it like yeah terrorists instead of russians and looking at the trailer it's basically the exact same plot except the main hacker dude his kind of friend is also a dude and they're playing against a computer called ripley who's a sexy lady oh would you like to play chess <laughs> or nuclear war 
I remember you saying once that the chest should have a piece, which was like a nuclear bomb, which got rid of several pieces. And I'm like, I don't think you quite understand the, the chess. <laughs> you know, I'm just updating it for modern sensibilities. What was the um? Oh, I'm trying to think of the name of the chess computer. Was it Deep Focus or a uh, Deep? I want to say no, Blue Oyster, blue? but that's the pub. That's the bar from police academy no, deep, deep deep blue thought, yeah deep blue because deep thought is guide. Mm. was it deep blue that beat gary kasparov <laughs> yeah i think so but anyway i think this is all we're talking about like front matter stuff at the real end we've told you what we thought about the film <laughs> um and yeah i think we we basically both give it a thumbs up but it took me a little bit time a bit more time to get there <laughs> Um, but in the meantime, how can people keep in touch with Games on Film? You can find more information about Games on Film, the podcast, and Games on Film, the films, on our website, gamesonfilm.witsite.com slash podcast. We're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Games on Film Pod, and all episodes of the podcast are available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, indeed, wherever you get your podcasts. So please like, rate, review, share, and subscribe. You can also email us, gamesonfilmpod at gmail.com, and you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Rory Steele. I'm at Only Man Who Can. And the music for this episode was composed by David Lightfoot. So I thought that was that was quite a nice conversation. I thought going back to the 80s, there's not many times we get to go this far back. And it's also quite nice to discuss another film which is inspired by video games. Uh, but until we... I was going to say until we meet again. We never meet you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but until next time, I've been Harry. I've been Rory. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.